Welcome to the CX Hustle. My name is Justin Tippett, and in this episode, it's part two of our interview with Dr. Amy Morgans, the Executive Director of Operations Support at ESTA, or the Emergency Services Telecommunications Authority. I know it's a mouthful, uh, but you've probably uh, heard it better as the 000 Emergency Contact Centre. Now, in part one, we covered a lot of things around how they manage their data, their trending, forecasting, etc. Part two takes a little bit more of a, a people path. So we look at things like training and their learning management system, um, how they do performance reviews, etc. And we also end up with just sort of some of the things that they're looking at uh, in the future. So we're going to cut straight back into the interview. Hope you enjoy. So panel interview, you make your selection, you make some offers and you get some new starters in the door. I'm guessing you probably just don't throw them straight on the phone through a triple zero call and say good luck with that. So what's sort of the training induction program look like? So there's a good 12 weeks to the induction. So Uh the first six weeks is a little bit classroom based, Uh um, Uh but with every shift that you do, there's a little bit more exposure and a little bit more exposure. So generally we welcome people in on a specific service. So um, for example, they might work as a police call taker first. Yep. Um, and that's that will be the, the starting point. Um, are they, are for they them. the easier ones? Uh, I don't know that I, no, I think they're all different. Police right. is challenging because you never you don't have any visual idea of what they're looking at, so they it's hard to know what to ask. Yep. So we've got standard questions that people use, so they're structured call taking questions mm-hmm. um, and that usually elicits all the information we need to do the first part which is to triage the call. But remembering we've got to try and find that balance between keeping people safe and getting enough information um, and then letting obviously the law enforcement evidentiary process take effect. So if you think about you know what's important on a police call there's all sorts of evidentiary process things that factor into our instructions about don't touch this, don't go there, don't you know for some cases don't have a shower, don't change your clothes, don't um, step outside, don't go back inside. So it's hard because you're trying to evaluate the situation to inform the police of what they're heading into. Um, and the concern for our agency partner staff is also very high. So we're very aware of that what they're walking into and we try and give them as much information as possible. And we're trying to help the person who's actually in the situation that they're in. And we're trying to make sure all processes and things are checked off so that exactly everything's been done to give that person best chance of good outcome for whatever that might be for them. So the training takes about 12 weeks. Um, I don't think police or ambulance is any harder than each other, they're both pretty hard. Um, and again, you know, there's things you don't think about fire, like um, different types of chemicals um, mean that you should have different um, instructions for people. Yeah. Um, so you really be really careful, you're looking for you know, hazard stickers on cars in accidents and that sort of stuff. So the first six weeks is largely classroom based um, and does include every single day that you're in. You do get a bit more exposure, a bit of time on phones just as a listener or to listening to some really good training tapes. So with the the choose your own adventure triage process (laughs) here at ESTA, there are 1107 possible outcomes. So 1107 dispatch outcomes and we have a really great scenario library for all of those. So we have a call, with a scenario, with the rules, and everything's laid out end to end. So um, part of it's very structured, and then some of it's like, oh, I listened to this really interesting call, which was unusual. So we can go to the scenario library and pull that one out, and the whole group gets to listen to that. So over the process of 12 weeks, they they tend to cover the whole library, as well as the training manuals. The second six weeks, um, we have in a nursery environment, we call it a nursery environment. So we actually have a room set up that's live and people start out side by side with a mentor listening and then they do take some calls themselves 
And then once they've gotten good at uh, taking some calls themselves, then they can move into small groups of call takers with a person sitting right with, say, three people. Yeah. Okay. And they can provide good support. And then once they, each, I mean, each person's a bit self-timed. We have ideas for how long it takes people to get through the course, but if it takes them a bit longer, that's okay. Yep. If they're superstars, um, some people come in with prior experience that might give them an advantage in getting through the training a bit faster. Um, but again, it's really important people don't, people are adhering to our processes. Um, you know, an example of that is someone who was um, a pathologist. So they, they sort of had a lot of medical knowledge, um, but it's really important we don't, ad lib or assume that we know the caller has to tell us the information for us to record it yep. so after 12 weeks most people are okay to be on the phones on their own or with a mentor and then they're mentored for 12 more weeks so they have a wingman yep. for the next 12 weeks so you're six months in before you're considered competent and signed off and then at 12 months you're actually reaching all performance standards so we would rather you be slow and not meet performance but get the information correct and have high quality and then over time you get much faster yep, yep. and we can't make the faster happen any faster it just takes a bit of time sure. so then at 12 months most people are as fast and clever and quick and high quality as they're going to get yeah you spoke about i think 1107 mm -hmm. was all right uh, scenarios um do you have some sort of a, a knowledge management tool, I guess, that, that actually prompts them through, okay, this is a, a scenario, it's a, I don't know, a medical emergency hold up, whatever it might be, that actually sort of prompts the agents, or is it all sort of, you know, off knowledge and their training? No, we definitely have um, a learning management system, um, and we can track, therefore, what people have learned. So when they, so ongoing, once you're, you know, once you're out on the floor, you're subject to quality assurance processes. Mm -hmm. um, we have a very um, high level of performance monitoring here um, and that's externally and then from our agencies and then from our own organisation so it's nowhere to hide is it nowhere to hide um, but that's okay so what we can do is when you you know you have a, a problem call or a call that's you know below our very high standards so our standards are 95% so you know we have that's really quality, quality yeah, score, yeah. 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 so yeah. We, we have really high expectations so yeah. when there's that call that creates some confusion or it's a bit unusual, for example, um, a fall from a horse. Mm -hmm. um, so a fall from a horse, is that a, a vehicle accident? Is that a yeah. fall? Because yeah. um, there's different ways to classify these things. Um, so if, if you get to the end of that and we haven't sort of collected the right information or it's made us underestimate the severity of the case, then we actually can go into that learning management system and see when was the last time we went through that scenario for that person. So actually, they haven't brushed up on that one for six months. Let's schedule them some time off, yep. um, use our real-time desk people for that, find me half an hour this person can come off. Um, so we'll take them out of the space uh, and go through that with a trainer and make sure they're very comfortable um, and check through anything else that they've been a while since they've touched and just go through those scenarios. So everyone has um, a one-hour performance review every month um, and in that you get given all your own quality data. So you can see I've been audited 10 times and it's all come up compliant, but here's one that I've come up with a, you know, a score of 82, yep. so a couple of things I've missed there, let's go through that one. Yeah. What's the ratio, like once you pass that 12 months mark, what's, what's the ratio of sort of team leader to, to agents? Um, we like a ratio of uh, one to 14. So our hierarchy, we have an executive manager of ops, who's the boss of each of the three centres or their facilities. They then have an army, so we have three of those. We have uh, 12 assistant centre managers, so each one gets proportional um, centre managers and each centre manager manages about six team leaders 
and each of those team members have around 12 people. Yeah, okay. So yeah. it's a pretty, pretty close span of control. Yeah. Um, there are some challenges with managing some of our part-timers. So generally you get to be part-time here after you've worked here for a while and you've had some sort of extended leave, sometimes coming back from maternity leave or study leave, um, and then you can negotiate a, a part-time return if you don't want to come back full-time. So what we find is that some people that have gone off and done uni degrees and that sort of thing will still like to work a Friday, Saturday police shift. We've always got a few spare shifts on. So actually the team leader who might work day shift um, will find it hard to catch up with those people. So we do have some groups where we, um, the span of control is a little bit bigger because it includes a few part-timers. Um, so we've allocated some extra team leader resources to chase them up. Um, you know, maybe they only do it Sunday shifts. Yep. Now, you know, they've had a couple of kids and, you know, but they're still highly qualified and they're great for our surge workforce. Um, but on their standard roster, they just knock off a Sunday um, to cover any leave and that sort of stuff. So uh, it can be hard to catch those last few people, but we have very good systems to monitor exactly where people are at. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably the, the real obvious stuff uh, for me, and we've spoken about, you know, the type of people that you get in and the comprehensive training, I guess, that goes behind it uh, and how we really need to be focused on, you know, the process of, of, of the call. Mm -hmm. But there's obviously those calls that, you know, every now and then are just going to rock your world. Um, <laughs> I remember you played one at the uh, the conference last year and you made me cry. Um, so yeah, there's some pretty uh, there's some I pretty did. tough ones. How, how do, you know, what what's the steps in place? I know a lot of call centres will have the the traditional, um, you know, external support partners that, you know, people can go to if they're, they're struggling, but oh, I guess you're probably exposed to it a bit more maybe than here. So how, how does that work for you here if people need that support? Look, the, the roles we have here are challenging, yes, but they're also very rewarding. Um, so it's, it's high cost, high benefit, high risk, high yep. gain, all that yep. stuff. So challenging and rewarding. Um, but so are our dispatcher roles too. So if I talk about call takers, um, certainly they're, they're, they're people focused, they're people facing, they're actually talking directly to the members of the community and that's a certain type of stress, that's a real empathy based stress. Mm -hmm. um, the, the dispatcher roles are, have their own level of challenge and reward as well where at times there is no resources to yeah. send and that, and that is be, extremely yeah, stressful. Exactly. Um, if you think about one of the biggest, um, most stressful things that came out of uh, Black Saturday was the fact that there was a geographical barrier between the resources we wanted to send and the people that needed them. So there was actually a fire yep. that created a huge barrier. So we couldn't get resources to people. So there's really really quite strong consequences of those things on people's well-being. Yeah. So it is it is challenging. Um, we have a very highly supportive environment. So obviously our training um, and our, um, you know, our, our helping focus is actually why people are here. Um, and the, if the outcome is that the person got the best help that we're able to offer, then that's a good outcome regardless of the outcome for that person. Um, so we, we do have the right um, philosophical approach, I think, to helping. We have an employee assistance program available 24-7, um, which is formal counselling. Yep. Um, we have peer support program, um, which is where staff can staff have specific mental health training and can check in on each other. Um, and that can then escalate into some counselling or into those people's management to a range, um, a range of, of time, off phones or role changes and those sorts of things. Um, and most of our leadership team have undertaken uh, mental health first aid training, so we can work, walk into the immediate environment and offer debriefs. 
I mean, we work in an environment where there's genuine care, support and connection between colleagues. So I did mention before, it's a bit of a family. Certainly within people's teams, there's, yep. there's those really strong relationships. As I said, one of our scheduling challenges is one person gets married and, and we need to give half a staff a day off to go and congratulate them. Um, so, so there really is that, um, we depend really quite heavily on that peer environment. Um, there is always someone to talk to. Um, there is always HR processes we can activate that allow for debriefing, uh, role changes, time away. Um, and most people have their own way of, of getting through it. Certainly in the, in the quiet rooms at each site, when you have that 30 minutes of downtime, there's some nice big recline chairs, it's dark, yep. Yep. it's quiet. Uh, go in there and, and have a moment. Um, we have a range of, in terms of the data analytics in the back end, um, we have some what we call sentinel surveillance. So um, I have a big list of event types that if those things happen, we set up a little alert because it doesn't matter, you know, um, it, it's always going to be a challenging job. Um, usually those that involve children, those that are violent interpersonal calls, yep. um, calls where people know the person or know somebody. Uh, I saw um, literally on the news a couple of days ago, it was one of the things I wanted to raise about how much support and promotion you have for your staff, which I think is awesome. And mm. uh, yeah, I saw that article a couple of days ago uh, on the news, um, looking at the, uh, Tanya, their media manager right now. It was, uh, yeah. it was terrific. And I think uh, it was a former employee, mm. I think he worked or his child rang in and got his former team leader or something. That's yeah, it. yeah, yeah. He, we actually have um, a surprising amount of that. Um, and it's happened to me. My children were in a car accident um, and there was zero calls about that. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, so I got a separate phone call directly from the scene to say they've been in an accident and I suddenly heard the sirens and thought someone's actually called for my kids. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's pretty wild. <laughs> oh my God. And you have that own panic moment. Um, certainly people have to call for their families. On average, every, every Victorian will call triple zero once in their life. Right. And yep. that includes people at work here. Yep. Um, so Absolutely. that's going to happen. Yep. Um, we have processes in place for that as well, or people... Um, find out about you know people who are unwell or have um, been involved in accidents or incidents um, and we even had um, I was in a project group the other day where we had an incident happen at a hospital uh, hospital went into lockdown um, and so I was sort of actively managing that while I was dealing with this other meeting and then it became clear that the spouse of someone in that meeting was actually working at that hospital and in that ward oh, wow. yep. um, so then you know you have to even in the support office even in the you know project management team you can always uh, everyone's connected to triple zero even the people that work here that's that's you know the nature of um, of the emergency services sector yeah um, it, it is a, an incredibly amazing environment that you have and, and the support as you said for your staff is probably second to none in terms of, of what I've seen and, and that promotion uh, that you do with your staff again I think is probably second to none and it's probably a testament to, to, to Tanya and the mm -hmm. team that do all the media work but okay. you guys are really proactive around actually showing how much of a great job your staff do and I think it's something we could probably all learn from. Um, people seem to be pretty actively involved as well in, in that as well they're not too shy to <laughs> talk no. about what they do. No we're very um, we are very proud of our staff um, I think that there's, there's always a challenge where there's a difference um, where we've got a bit of a fight for legitimacy really at Esther. So we actually aren't part of Ambulance Victoria and we aren't part of Victoria Police and we're this, this sort of um, link in the chain of emergency services provision. Um, but we're not um, people that have been out there operationally and done the, the turning up to the scene and having to manage a, you know, a, 
a crime or manage a, you know, a health emergency or manage a fire. Um, so I think historically we haven't done a lot of the, the promotion stuff because we've seen ourselves as providing services to our agencies and they do that work. Um, but we're starting to work more and more with our agencies as we see that um, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. One of the advantages of having Esther do all the call taking dispatch is what it lets the agencies focus on is cops being on the beat, yep. paramedics doing paramediking. I yep. mean, I don't know that they would do a four-year degree just to come and answer triple zero phones using structured call taking processes. You know, that's, that's not what they're best used for. So they're certainly seeing us as um, a really valid partner. Um, and that we are able to, and as I said, we do it with exactly whatever business rules they want. If they need to change a rule, they change it. And then we do the downstream effect of that. Um, so we're connecting in more and more with our agency partners as well, um, particularly ambulance. Um, so we've do, been doing some work on out of hospital cardiac arrest and all their data showed them that if the triple zero call taker can identify cardiac arrest early, and can do really good CPR, then the person has a much greater chance of survival. So even if the paramedics have amazing skills and a million dollars worth of ambulance and gear, mm. they can't save somebody if there hasn't been really great CPR. Yep. And, and the best way to get great CPR stuff. is the call taker really giving people the confidence and the authority, here's what I need you to do, turn the person on their back. Um, we've got really amazing instructions that you wouldn't believe. Grab the person by their ankles and pull them off the bed. Yep. Because yep. getting someone who's big and heavy off a bed is actually really hard yeah, yeah. when they're yep. unconscious and they're a complete dead weight yep. and people spend a lot of time trying to get them off a bed because CPR is completely ineffective on a soft surface. Yep. Yep. Have to get them on the floor. And the instructions say, take them by the ankles, yeah. pull them off the bed. Yep. Um, and people are like, oh, but they might hit their head. Well, you know what, if they don't get CPR, it's the least of the problem. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so, there's, um, so there's some really great connections being built with our agency partners, which I'm really excited about, and, um, and, and understanding the, you know, the, even in the legal space, you know, the rules of evidence are really, really important. So having a crime happens horrible. Not being able to prosecute it because the scene was contaminated is much worse because you can't then do anything about that. So there's very serious things that we have to do to manage that, to have that person have a better outcome, not just of that exact event, mm. long-term health outcome. They are much more likely to have better neurological outcome if they've had great CPR. They are more likely to be able to progress to a legal conviction if the scene is preserved. Um, so that's really important stuff. Yep. And it goes a bit beyond the, did they answer my call? Did they send the police? Absolutely. So if I just um, uh, drill into that just for a second, um, uh, around dragging someone off the bed, for example, it's a great example. And, and you said that you know that came out of looking at some data and knowing that there's a better response, um, mm -hmm. you know, survival rate. I guess if you follow that process, where is that initiated from? Are you looking at the data, or is is, is ambulance in this instance looking at the data, going, "Geez, we, we took up, you know, the call takers took 100 calls for us on heart attacks. You know, 50 died, but 50 didn't. Whatever. Is that is that analysis driven? By, by them or you or is it a joint thing every now and then you get together and look at all these things? Yeah, so certainly we um, partner with them on a lot of extra stuff. So we do, there's probably layers, it's a bit like anything, there's layers. So we certainly do a lot of monitoring of our own data and we have goals about how fast we want CPR commenced and um, a lot of our quality data is then used for continuous improvement. I'm sure that then each agency does their own monitoring of continuous improvement and then we have obviously a joint environment where we can share those about the generic quality stuff. I think where there's real opportunity and what we've started to do is, is tie into the research space where people can take a step away from you know quality monitoring of current state and look at future options or ideal options and they can model it back. 
So there's a, a lot of research into cardiac arrest in Ambulance Victoria. They have a really great database. So the challenge of our data is it finishes. So we've done the response, the ambulances take them to hospital and that's the last we know. Yep, yep. So Ambulance Victoria are actually able to link to health records and see that these people survived. Right, yep. These people woke up, these people a year on are still alive yep. um, and they're well and healthy. So um, we depend on them mm. and the research space that does that extra data analytics um, to provide us some really innovative stuff. So with the data that we have and the work that we do, we're able to do um, good high quality a service provision, but research gives us that layer of innovation where we can really test out and try out new things um, and that that's all comes down to partnerships and being willing to sort of step out of the comfort zone of did we answer every call in five seconds and saying what would happen if, yeah. what would happen if we automated that, what would happen if we set up an alarm about that, what would happen if we, you know, tried this new thing. Mm. Um, so an example of that is drones in incident management for fire services. So recently I was talking to someone online from Scotland and he was saying that fire services don't attend a job without drones now because it gives them an idea of uh, the heat um, coming off of the site, yep. um, gives them an idea of spread, gives them an idea of access points um, and there's so much more information in that. Um, so we have to, we don't have that, fire don't have it, we don't have it, but you know what, it's there and, and we could get some research up to really look at whether that would improve scene safety, would it actually improve technical management of a fire? Mm -hmm. If anyone's tried to put out a fire, it's actually quite hard, um, especially when it's highly flammable in ingredients. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've got lots of opportunity there to, to try out new, new technologies like drones, like, um, you know, the Good Sam project. So that's where there's um, opportunity to alert local um, qualified people to cardiac arrests, particularly helpful in regional areas where there's less ambulance crews available. Yep. Um, again, that all depends on technology and community sort of crowd resourcing stuff. Speaking of technology, um, uh, video chat, is that something that you guys are looking at now doing already or coming soon? Or <laughs> Well, video chat, look, it would be great. We have a, a five-year plan to upgrade our technology um, platform and that will allow some opportunity for video. Um, if you think about the wellbeing impact of, of voice triple zero call taking, one of my thoughts about it is how we're gonna handle video. Yep. In some ways it makes it easier, there's less questions to ask, and in other ways we're exposing our call takers to a whole new, yeah. whole new world. Wow. Yep. Um, so, yes, video. Um, there's also, I mean, what we really need is omni-channel, so if you think about that car rollover technology now, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's right. starting to send alerts. Stuff, yep. So yep. maybe what sort of what does that look like? That's really going to be text rather than voice or video. Mm -hmm. um, really, what we'd like is to have a, a system that's nice and flexible that we can use for lots of different things, and we'll see what the community really want. Because at the end of the day, it's the community's pathway to emergency services, and they're going to access it in whatever way they like. Yep. Um, so at the moment, we are largely limited to voice. We would like it to be different, but we haven't really done the work to see what the community would like. Um, so that'll be really interesting. Watch this space. Um. I think there's some technology stuff though with the agencies as well where um, what do what do paramedics want? Mm. You know, do mm. they want to be able to, you know, certainly again I was in, um, it's actually in Scotland and they were talking about um, that they have a, in their central control room they have some, they've got quite remote areas and some of it's helicopter access only. Um, so they would do a bit of video linking and talking people through um, management, including the actual medical staff of regional hospitals, 
um, and paramedics that were out in, the, out in the field. So they would actually be able to video call into the local hospital and get some advice from the, the actual um, you know, the medical doctor who's on, on scene there. Yep. So there's lots of things the agencies would like as well. Um, body-worn cameras by police um, yep, yep. and all that sort of stuff. So how does that all link in is, is also important. So certainly the callers is one thing and then all the agencies that we work with would be another. Absolutely. Thank you, um, Amy, for sharing some of the, uh, just, just a little glimpse, I guess, into the world that, uh, that you live in. But I mean, you know, as someone that lives in Victoria, you know, we are incredibly blessed to have you know your team that are there to support us knowing that you know our call is going to be answered within <laughs> five, five seconds, seconds. <laughs> i'm going to time you that i'm not hopefully i never have to ring your uh, your services but it's a, it's an amazing asset for us as a community to have and i think you know what you guys do now and what you're going to be doing in the future is, is pretty exciting times so thank you um for the listeners we will have an article uh, on on cx central of course and i'm uh, after i'm meeting uh, after this interview i'm actually meeting with a few staff as well so i'll uh, include some of that in the uh, article as well so again Fantastic. thank you amy for your time and um thanks yeah. for your interest it's been really great it's a fascinating insight and uh, i hope all, all our listeners enjoyed it thank you <laughs> thanks amy bye-bye